Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we begin a new study walking through the book of Luke. We start today with a relatively obscure beginning to Luke's gospel, recounting the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist and the subsequent prophecy from his father Zechariah. Thanks for tuning in today as we see how Luke shows his readers that they can put their trust in the God who keeps his promises. Uh, we're going to start a, uh, a new series that uh, it's my intention to last us straight through Easter. Uh, I have found that it is paramount upon the church to give its attention, prioritizing the Word of God, the reading of God's Word. And I actually myself have never been in a church that has just simply started at the beginning of one of the Gospels and worked straight through. And, and I'd like to see if we could do that. And to put an expectation out there for God's blessing over our time that as we look and diligently work through the Gospel of Luke, that God is going to speak to us and revive us and cause us once again to see Jesus in a way that is fresh and new in our lives. So this morning begins a start looking at Luke's Gospel. So if you have your Bibles, you can take them out and turn there with me. As you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit about um, uh, maybe one of my not-so-good traits. <clears throat> Whenever I'm in the, uh, the Bahamas, I'm reminded of our time there. And as, um, as we got started, uh, my wife and I, we began as interns uh, taking care of mission teams that would come in and, and stay for a week, and they would do a work, and they would leave. Well, one of the things that we would do with teams is we would always go to the beach. Doesn't that sound terrible? Every day, go to the beach, uh, which actually is awesome, and it's a ton of fun, right, until you've done it every single day, and it actually, believe it or not, can get kind of Uh, At least for me, it can get wearisome. I mean, you have sand all over you all the time. You're salty and sticky. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's plenty nice. I'm not trying to complain about the beach, but actually I kind of am. I mean, uh, and so the way in which uh, I approach it now is saying that it's fine for my kids and somebody else, but you know what? I'd rather not go to the beach. (laughs) If If I had it my way. I'd like to walk along the beach, but to get all sandy and salty, I'd rather not. Well, uh, my kids, when they were uh, there with me uh, this, this time, were, were begging to go to the beach. And Emily took them a couple of times, but they wanted to go with me because they wanted to rest, wrestle in the water and get tossed around and run around and have a great time with their dad. And so finally I said, all right, I promise we'll go to the beach. Now, when a parent promises something... They got to keep that promise because those kids lock it in. I mean, they don't forget. And Michael continued to ask, Dad, you said, and, and you said, and remember. And I, I try to really make it a component of my life to keep my word, especially with my kids, and always tell the truth. And so, yep, we ended up going to the beach. And it, it was a lot of fun. In fact, it was so much fun that I, this was just our, the last day with Emily and Sadie before uh, they were going back and they were flying out at 3 p.m. And I thought, this is so much fun. Maybe we could go again before they had to fly out just because it was so much fun. But the kids, they, they'll, they'll keep you to your promise. They will. They'll, they'll hold you to it. And uh, what I want us to see is the way in which we find our word so very important to keep. How much more important is God's word to keep? And so I'm entitling this message, The Promise of God. Luke is writing a gospel. 
He's writing it to the church. And some of what we don't completely understand when we look to Luke is really the timing of it. I know before I began to study this, uh, I used to think that the church always had the Gospels. It was just something that they had and that they referenced and that they used to build on their lives. But actually, they had Paul's writings and Paul's teachings long before they had the Gospels. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to look with me, starting in Luke chapter 1, just to see Luke's purpose, his intent in laying down this gospel. He says in verse 1, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Verse 4, so that. Now remember, every time you see a so that in your Bible, pay close attention. It's going to give you the uh, reason to the answer. uh, Question, why? Why why did you write this? Luke, here it is. Verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The church had been taught the teachings of Jesus Christ. But what you need to know is that they were being persecuted. And that the church during this time was going through a difficulty. As the church really always has on earth. Knowing that this is not our home and our citizenship belongs in heaven. We follow a king who's not from this earth. That there is a difficulty in following after Jesus Christ. Luke wants you to know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. That's why he writes this gospel. I I would find it interesting. What if it was you? What if it was you that was going to write down as one who has carefully investigated everything? What would you want to tell the church? And he starts with a story not about Jesus, but he starts with a story about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And here's the reason I believe that he does this. I believe that Luke wants to make as foundational into the heart of God's people the understanding that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. How's life for you guys? You good? Life's pretty good, generally speaking, right? It doesn't always stay that way. I'm certain that if we spent time going around this morning and asking, you know, what are you facing right now? Pretty soon our prayer list would get a lot longer. And that you'll recognize that, you know what? There are a lot of things that don't belong in this world that happen to be in this world. And it is difficult. Now, what do you do when you face difficulty? I doubt that any of us are going to be persecuted in the way that the first century church was persecuted. But we still must make sure that we're not confusing living in America with God's presence and a blessings. You, you and I, we have a pretty easy lot by, by far compared to many other Christians this morning who are meeting in secret. Who are meeting with fear of persecution of the government coming and knocking down their doors. But not so with us. And yet we must recognize... That the promises of God made to them, even in the first century, are still the promises that are made true to us. The question becomes, do we live our lives in light of that? That's really where I want us to land at the end of the message today. Is is the evaluation over how we live our lives concerning God's promises. 
Does, does he keep his promises? Yes or no? Say, say it good and loud. Does he keep his promises? Yes. yes, he keeps his promises. All right, if that's true, how does that influence then how we live? I, I'm, I'm going to narrow it a little bit more for us as well. All right, as we get to the end of everything, uh, the place where we're really going to land is a question on if God's promises are true, then how do we live in light of Christmas and the promise made manifest at Christmas. So that's where we're going to head. All right, so with that in mind, we're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to read Luke's account for the story of uh, the birth of John the Baptist. And then we're going to see even as it shows up uh, towards the end of chapter 1. So starting in verse 5, Luke writes, In the same time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the, incense, for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel he, will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. What, what's he trying to say there? That's a polite way of saying what? She's on that right. Okay, we're, here we go. Verse 19. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the, the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the, pop, at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. 
It's an amazing story, isn't it? You've got at the beginning of Luke's effort to ground the church in the foundation of God's promise, this story of a priest and his wife, the difficulty that they were having in conceiving a child, and then God answering that prayer in accordance with his timing, his plan, his purpose. All right, let, let's wrap up and kind of see the end of the story here. I'd like you to jump over to verse uh, 57, and let's see what happens to Zechariah. All right, Luke chapter 1, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, They were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. To show mercy to the fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Amazing, right? Amazing story. It's the kind of thing that somebody would say, you can't make this stuff up, right? Just in... Incredible The way in which Zechariah could not speak. And then just like the angel said, when the proper time comes at the fulfillment of these things, he will be able to speak. And here he now declares as a, a prophet of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, this amazing song that fills and ends the first chapter that Luke records for us. There's just a couple of observations I'd like us to make, uh, really to ground us in Luke's purpose. The first is this. He starts with this story of Zechariah to call the reader's attention to another story. Now, what was the major problem with Zechariah and his wife? They couldn't what? They couldn't have a baby. 
I find this really interesting. If you look in, uh, at the beginning in chapter 1, uh, when the angel says to him in verse 13, uh, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Uh, I'm going to give you this as just maybe a slight point of speculation, but I'm pretty sure this is true. So get yourself in the situation. Zachariah is one of the priests who are on duty. He's the guy that, you know, draws the short straw and he's got to come light the incense in the temple. So he comes on in. Everybody's outside worshiping and praying. And as he's here, the angel shows up. Now, I come to church sometimes and and I I pray. And I know Fridays we meet here and, and we pray. And maybe you might find time to come in and just pray. What do you think Zachariah was praying about? Now, if I'm going to imagine he's the priest, it must be something for Israel, right? It must be something on behalf of all the people. But look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. What do you think he was praying for? Again, this is a little bit of speculation because the text isn't super clear on this. But I think that's what Luke is trying to show. That in Zechariah's heart, even as the priest supposed to be praying on behalf of all the people, here he is before God just praying, Lord, I wish I had a kid. I wish I had a son to play catch with. Or, you know, just even for my wife's sake. Because you have to understand in the culture of that day, if you couldn't conceive, you were thought of in disgrace. As a, as a lesser class, just in the way in which culturally they treated women back then. What a difficult place to be in. And any couple who has ever struggled to conceive maybe understands exactly what that feels like. What I want you to see, maybe two things. First of all, that God hears your prayers. God hears even those little quiet ones that you offer to him. Even when you know you should be praying for this or that or these big giant things, God knows your heart. He knows even the small things that you would want to pray for. And look at this. He's answering. Look at the answer in verse 14. The, the boy, John, he will be a joy and a delight to you. Isn't that awesome? That God has heard the prayer of Zechariah and his wife. Yet I think the reason why Luke chooses this story is because he wants the mind of his readers to think of another couple years and years ago in the Old Testament who also had difficulty conceiving a child. Does anyone know who that is? His name actually shows up at the end of chapter 1. Abraham and Sarah. That's right. The reason why that is important, the reason why I believe that's what Luke is doing here, is because the entire covenant of God with his people begins with Abraham. It begins with God doing the impossible. Now, I just don't have time to get into it, but I wish I did. I mean, if you go back and read the story in Genesis chapter 12, it's God coming and pledging this to Abraham. And what, do you remember what Sarah does when God says you're going to have a baby? She laughs. She can't even believe it. Are you kidding me? You must, you must be crazy. You, you think I'm going to have a baby? Even Abraham thinks it's not going to work out. And Sarah, as she's getting nervous, trying to hold on to God's promise, she says, you know what? Here's my maidservant, and it's just not going to happen. And we ought to get it done with plan B. Why? Because they don't trust God's promise. This is why Luke begins with this. He's writing to a church that's going through hardship. He's writing to Christians who know it's a difficult thing to follow the Lord in this world. And he wants you to know you can trust God's promise. He begins with this story. Again, showing God's promise to be made true as the forerunner of Christ to prepare the way for Christ. But in parallel to another story in the Old Testament where God once again kept 
his promise. So number one, it's the allusion to Abraham um, and to Sarah and the difficulty that they had. Second thing I want you to see is Zechariah's lack of faith. Um, I don't think any of us would really fault him, but look at verse 18, right? Uh, The angel says this. Now, you're going to disagree with an angel? Who's going to here argue with an angel? If the angel says it, folks, you might as well just write it down. That's how it's going to be. But is that what he does? Look at verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Nah. I don't know. I don't believe it, Gabriel. I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years, right? A kind way of saying she's past her prime. Look, what's impossible for man ain't no problem for God. That's worth an amen, right? What's impossible for man ain't no problem for God, amen? Amen. Yeah, and you might face something. In fact, you know what? You're going to face something sometime that just looks like, how are we going to get by this? And this is difficult. And, and, and you know what, God, how, how can I be sure? And you got to show, and I, give me a sign. And it's just, the sign is not the one I think Zachariah wanted. Right? He got a sign, which was what? You can zip it. You're not going to be able to say anything or speak until this comes true. I want us to resonate with that because I think that that's very human. I think we're just like Zachariah in many ways. I want us to learn from his lack of faith. And I want to press to you once again that you can trust God even when it's hard. All right, the third thing I want you to see is that going through the trials grow your faith. They do. When you go through a hardship, it will grow your faith. The the more difficult the situation, the more that God comes and draws near to you and shows you that he is enough. And causes us to let go of the things that we thought were enough. Whether that was financial help or our health or our own loved ones. Whatever that is. God, he is enough. And when you go through the trial, it is given to you for the building up of your faith. I want you to see how this happened. Uh, look towards the end of the chapter. Towards verse uh, 64. So the, in 62, the folks are making signs to his father to find out what he would name the child, which I don't quite understand because uh, the angel said he couldn't talk, now that he couldn't hear. So I think that the people around Zechariah were a little confused, thinking he couldn't hear as well. But at any rate, they start making signs to him. He says, John, immediately, verse 64, his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. What would you say? If this was you, what would you say? You just spent nine months not being able to say anything. You might think of a couple choice words for some people that you've been saving up, maybe. I'm not sure what it is you and I would say. But I want you to see what he said. Right when he ends this trial, he began to speak. What's your Bible say? Praising God. When you go through a hardship, when you go through a difficulty, it is given to you not to break you, but to grow you. And Zechariah shows us this, that, that as he ends the difficulty, he's grown closer to God so that the first words out of his mouth are praise to God. All right, the last thing I want you to see is in verse 67 uh, through 70. His father, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, now prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to redeem his people. That's awesome. He has come to redeem his people. That's Emmanuel. That's God with us. He has come. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. God's word means hope, church. God's word and God's promise to you, it means hope. But you've got to believe it. You have to hold to it. It's not enough just to come to church. You've got to be in the word of God seven days a week. You have to be holding to it. You have to saturate your life with it. Because it is only through God's word that we find hope. Did you see what he said in verse 70? Like, what, what did Zechariah turn to to recognize that God was doing these things? He turned to the Old Testament prophets who said this long ago. Continue to read down a little further. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers. To remember his holy covenant. Verse 73. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. God's word means hope. God's word means hope. If we forget Christ, what is Christmas? It's nothing. It's a waste of time without Christ. God made a promise long ago to send one through the line of David. That was our reading that Rosanna read for us this morning. His promise was that never will there fail to be one who will sit on the throne that God will establish forever. And God's people waited a long time for that. And some of them began to give up hope. Some of them began to think of the Messiah differently than it would be. And because of that, they failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They failed to hold to the promises of God. Let that not be something that we would do. That we would fail to hold to God's promises. Even though they are sometimes long in coming. Or they might not come the way that we would think. And let that be something that affects us this Christmas season for how we live. A few observations I want to leave you with. Because Christmas is about Christ. Number one, God keeps his promises. God will keep his promises. Remember that was verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God swore the oath. It's as they say, you can take it to the bank, right? It's as good as true. And that's exactly what God did at Christmas. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some of you understand slowness. What is he? He's patient towards you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So you got to hold to it. Because Christmas is about Christ and God kept his promise then, he will keep his promises to you. Number two, we can serve him without fear. I want you to see where that shows up. So I'm still in the word of God here. Look at verse 74. When Zechariah is saying these things, he says... Uh, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. This pastor can preach right now. I'm just, I've, I've really wanted to go along on this, but I'm going to try to shorten it up for you, okay? Uh, the entirety of our hope as Christians is resurrection. Who here is going to die someday? Everybody's going to die. All right, well, if that's it, if that's the end of it, then you better uh, live for the world now. Get rich or die trying, right? If that's all there is. But that ain't all there is. God has promised us resurrection in kind with his son's resurrection. Because that is our great hope. What can man do to you here? What can anyone do to you now? 
The spirit that you have living in you can never die. The body will die, but not your spirit. And the body will be raised. So what do you have to fear? The week that I left. The week that I left, there was a shooting at a church in Texas. Do you remember that? I broke my heart. Do you know what? None of those people have anything to fear. They have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear in this world. Because Christmas is about Christ. And he was raised from the dead. And God keeps his promise. Look, you can serve him in this life. You don't have to have any fear. Now this is what he says in Romans 15. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. The spirit of God that you received, it frees you. Rather, the spirit you received brought you into your adoption to sonship. You're part of his family now. Look, if God's watching over you, what do you have to fear? If God is your heavenly father, who could touch you? Who could bring any charge against you? There's nothing that anyone can do to you on earth. They can kill the body. They can't touch the soul. And God's promised to raise the body. So be empowered, church of Jesus Christ. Go and live for him without fear. Because Christmas is about Christ. All right, number three. Because Christmas is about Christ, we can live in holiness and in righteousness. That's what Jesus does for us. The Spirit comes and he draws you to him. So you don't have to live like you used to live. In the filth and in the trash and following after the desires of the flesh. The temptations of this world. You don't have to. You can live in holiness and righteousness. Paul writes this to the Colossians. uh, As he's saying, taking off the old self. Putting on Christ. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with a new heart. A heart of mercy or compassion. A heart of kindness and humility. Of gentleness and of patience. We can live in holiness and in righteousness. This is exactly what he says in verse 75. Are you still with me in Luke chapter 1, verse 75? Right? Enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. You can't do this without Christ, by the way. You can't. You can try, but the best you and I produce before God without Christ is filth before God. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Only the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ is pleasing before him. So live in Christ. And you can do this. All right, number four, because Christmas is about Christ, all of our sins can be forgiven. If you look with me in verse 77, you'll see that this is exactly what the Savior is going to come to do. Zechariah says that Jesus is to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed to us to the kingdom of his son, of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood. That's great. I'm, I'm happy to have redemption through his blood. But Paul, what is that redemption made of? Like if I were to slice it, the redemption, what's in the middle? What is it? What's it say? The forgiveness of sins. That's it. You want to be redeemed? You want your sins done away with? The only hope you and I have is because Christmas is about Christ. If Christmas is not about Christ, you got no hope at all. But because it is, you can have forgiveness of your sins. Number five, there are hope for those who live in darkness and in death. This comes at the very end, verse uh, 78. 
and 79, because of the tender mercies of our God. The word there means the way in which God's, uh, God's heart was moved. That, that's the Greek word that's used here. His mercies are tender mercies. You know, like when you see somebody hurting, I don't know if you guys watch much TV, but I had it on yesterday, and it's right now filled with all of the uh, Compassion International commercials. You know the ones I'm talking about where they, they show the little poverty-stricken children or the cancer uh, kids, and it's <laughs> like, it's so hard to watch. I don't know about you, but I'm like, this is hard to watch these poor kids suffering. That was God. That's how God felt about you. God's mercy was in his guts towards you. Because he, he loves you. And he wants to heal you. Because of that, it says, uh, there will be a rising sun which will come to us from on high. So it's a picture of Christ as the light of God coming on us in verse 79. To shine on those living in darkness. The Greek here is, uh, it uses the word sitting. You can imagine... Imagine a dark alleyway in some city somewhere, and it's cold, and there's a newspaper blowing down the wind, and there's just somebody in a hoodie just sitting in darkness. No hope. They got nothing. Life has given them a bad set of circumstances. And then the light shines, and there's hope. That's what we have been offered, because Christmas is all about Christ there is hope for those living in darkness. You, you know anybody who doesn't know the Lord? You've you got friends, loved ones, family members that just are estranged from God. There's hope for them. Don't give up. There is hope for those living in darkness. How about those in the valley of death? How about those who are facing just, it's the end. There's, no, there's nothing for me here at all. Guess what? There is light from on high. There is hope because Christmas is about Christ. Romans 8, 22 through 25, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. By the way, that's awesome. You have the Spirit of God. That's just the first fruits. What does it still say that we do? We groan inwardly. Why? As we eagerly await our adoption as sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That's resurrection right there. So you're going to face the valley of death at some point. You don't need to fear. First of all, we've already seen that. But secondly, you can have hope. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, and I don't particularly like this last line, what's it say? We wait, right? You, you remember when you wanted dessert right away? I don't want to eat the vegetables. You got to wait. You got to wait, right? Well, that's kind of where we're at. You got to wait. And there's two ways of waiting. Waiting in just sorrow and life's hard. and Or waiting with hope. Waiting patiently. Jesus has not come to make everything right, but he will. And so we can wait because Christmas is about Christ. And then lastly, we will be guided to peace. You will be guided to peace. I, I did a lot of counseling when I was over in the Bahamas with uh, folks that were having a hard time. And one of the things that I kept encountering was that as we talked about the problems that they were having, you know what I discovered every single one of the problems was? With another person. They were, they were about another person, right? Um, any amens this morning on that? From uh, Yeah, I know what that feels like. Yeah. You know what? You as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not going to be able to be like, you know what? 
They can do them. I don't care. I'm done with them. You're not going to be able to do that. You might do that for a while. Right? You might be able to just satisfy the flesh for a while, but you know what? Eventually, you're going to be moved in your heart to say, this is not right how I feel about this person. I need to live at peace with this person. That's what God's Spirit will do. And the message to the shepherds was that Jesus comes to proclaim peace to mankind. Where he used to fight. And how many people are getting together with relatives for Christmas, right? We, yeah, and that's what it, you know, it can be like that. You know what? He will guide you to peace. Because Christmas is just not a day where they celebrate giving presents, decorating trees. Christmas is about who? Christmas is about Christ. And he will guide you to peace. Romans 5, 1 and 2 say, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, that means saved, all right? Since we're saved, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Here's what I want to leave you with a question as we finish today. I'd like you to ask, not what does Christmas uh, mean to you? Uh, th- this question was asked to um, a man, uh, Hemet Mehta, uh, who says he loves Christmas. He loves the Christmas season. This was an article written by CNN. He says he loves getting together with friends and family. Anybody? Right? Loves giving gifts. Love it. He loves the upbeat spirit and the crowds and the, you know, the busyness and shopping in Chicago. And, and he's even got a tree in his house. There's just one problem. Mr. Met is an atheist. Doesn't believe in God at all. Wants nothing to do with God. Thinks you're a fool because you believe in God. Childish little um, fairy tale that we all believe in. That's what he thinks. But you know something? You would very unlikely be able to tell the difference between a genuine Christian and an atheist at Christmas. You you hear me right now? We have been polluted by a world that has stripped Jesus from his birthday. So I want to ask you the question. Not what does Christmas mean to you? Because you'll answer. It means friends and family and getting together and presents and... Having, you know, that closeness and, you know, the smell of, what, what is Starbucks making? Whatever the new flavor is. Not pumpkin spice. What's the cinnamon something, right? Sure, that, that's what it means. To, that's what it means to everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian. The question I want you to answer is what should Christmas mean to you? What should this season mean to you? Now, you can leave today and say, oh, that was a fine message, and there I've got it in my sermon notes. Or you can take up the challenge and answer that question. My prayer for you is this, that as you seek God's glory in your life, He will help you to see that we can live in this world as a people who treat Christmas as though it belongs to Christ. But you have to be intentional. Let's pray this morning.